Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. State spike, coronavirus cases rising in 23 U.S. states. Manipulated media Twitter posts a fake news warning on a presidential tweet. And taking on Tesla, we speak to the founder of Nikola on their hydrogen-fueled trucks. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move this Friday. Fantastic to have you with us. It's Friday, as I mentioned. It's also Juneteenth, a day that commemorates the effective end of slavery in the United States. It's clearly taking greater prominence perhaps than ever before this year here and around the world as people call for greater racial equality. I think Fed Chair Jay Powell said it best this week. He said there's no place for racism in society. We agree. We'll talk more about this later on in the show. But for now, let me give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. futures pushing higher after stocks ended. Little changed yesterday. Sentiment perhaps being helped today by a report from Bloomberg suggesting China will step up its purchases of U.S. agricultural products. Oh, we're back to trade talks. This comes less than 24 hours after President Trump threatened to cut ties with China. Doing so again. We've certainly heard that before. I think right now investors tend to focus on action rather than rhetoric. So let's bring that squarely back then to stimulus and science as we keep talking about the former, the stimulus on tap in Europe as EU leaders begin discussions on how to pay for their proposed $850 billion stimulus fund. Oh, is that the sound of a can being kicked? I hear they're going to talk about that, I believe, next month. Chinese stocks, meanwhile, leading the way higher in Asia. Retailers and banks gaining on hopes of more government support there too. The Shanghai Composite, just for reference, less than 3% away now from turning positive on the year. The good news there, authorities saying Beijing's latest COVID-19 outbreak is now under control. Compare and contrast, here in the United States, we have 23 U.S. states seeing cases spike. For balance, cases, is, cases are falling in 21 U.S. states and in others. Infections are stable. Let's get you some context here because we're joined by senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth, great to have you with us on the show. Just give us some context because I keep seeing record, the word record being used for some states. How worried should we be by what we're seeing? Right, Julia, and this is not a good record. This is not a record that we want to set. You know, we know the United States is a huge country, and so some areas are doing better than others. And so let's take a look at a map that we have. On this map, the states that are in red and orange are the ones that are seeing sharp increases. In fact, the red states are seeing more than 50% increases. It is not a coincidence, Julia, that many of those red states are states that opened up early and that opened up pretty aggressively. States like Georgia, um, well, Florida, for example, is one of them. Um, these are states, these red and orange states, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, these are states that have been very aggressive. And so this, the, you know, this, you and I have talked about this, Julia, you do not need a PhD in immunology to know this piece of truth. 
the more people get together, the more this virus is going to spread. It is possible to open up the economy and do it in a smart way, to do it the right way, to have social distancing. But when people feel comfortable just, you know, going to large parties or when workplaces feel comfortable just getting people back to work without taking any precautions, that's where we run into trouble. It is not shocking that in the United States people have taken this approach because our president has basically said coronavirus is over. It's not a big deal. There are embers. He used the word embers. These are not embers. Hundreds of Americans are dying every day. You asked how worried should we be? I would answer very worried. When hundreds of Americans are dying every day, that is a national catastrophe. It is a catastrophe. And actually, we're seeing more people dying than some nations have suffered in totality. I mean, this is the the comparison, I think, that we have to keep making here. We are going to continue to reopen. I think that's the message, the top-down message. Certainly, we've got cases rising. We know a vaccine is still some time away, if at all. What more can we be doing, Elizabeth, to protect ourselves and each other? I think in order, so let's talk about what individuals can do and what what the, the government could be doing. I'll start with the government. What they could be doing is they could be doing it right. They could be very aggressive about contact tracing. The minute someone's diagnosed, you send a contact tracer there and you say, who have you been with? Who have you seen? We need to quarantine these people. Do all of that kind of work that needs to be done. In some places, that's happening more than in other places. It needs to be consistent and it needs to be persistent and going on everywhere. So that's one of the things that the government could do in in addition to other things. One of the, you know, unfortunately in the United States, unlike in some other countries, we've taken a sort of every man for himself or every woman for herself approach. So it's really down to individuals and what they want to do. I know, for example, where I live in in Georgia, that I see people who are being incredibly careful, who are wearing masks, who when they go for a walk, if they see someone approaching, they cross the street so that they don't get anywhere near them. So there are people who are being careful, but then there are people who are going into stores and other places without masks and not being careful at all. So as individuals, unfortunately, we are going to have to decide what we're going to do. Fighting a pandemic by individual is not the right way to do it. However, that's what it's come to in the United States. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. Wear a mask. In uh, given the lack of available other options and alternatives and strategies being used, wear a mask. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you for joining us on that. Yeah, thanks. Actually, what Elizabeth was just describing there is quite familiar if you look at what's been going on in China for the last several days. China now says Beijing's latest coronavirus outbreak is under control. This comes after the Chinese capital placed more than 20 million people under a partial lockdown following a new cluster of cases linked to a wholesale food market. Meanwhile, some reports from China claim that the strain of virus hitting the city could have come from Europe. David Culver is live in Beijing with the latest. David, always great to see you. Some pretty stringent measures taken by China in order to clamp down on these clusters. But I think the interesting, more interesting point for me there is the fact that they've released the genome, the DNA sequence for the particular virus strain. Fascinating too. Julia, always good to be with you. This narrative is being pushed really strongly by state media, that the origins of this are European, as they have put it, according to CDC here in China. And they say that's compared to the Wuhan strand that obviously spread throughout China over the course of several months, beginning back in December. Now, this recent strand they are labeling as an imported case. 
given that the border is shut down to most every foreigner, it's likely that that would then be a Chinese national who came in from another part of the world and brought with them the virus. But they also floated a few other theories with regards to that market in particular. It's the Shinfadi market, which is now completely shut down. And they say it could have come in possibly on seafood or meat. They were even suggesting salmon. And so as soon as they said that, other places in China stopped selling salmon altogether. However, the more likely situation is that this came into an infected individual, that they stepped into that market. That is a market that even though people are wearing masks, Every single day, we're not wearing one because we're on an elevated position in a private area. But as soon as we step on the street, everyone's still wearing masks. You're shoulder to shoulder. You're still in contact. You're touching things in a market, obviously. So that's likely where this human-to-human transmission took off and this new cluster emerged within Beijing. It's incredible to think, though, that it happened here. You've got to remember, Julia, Beijing was a fortress during much of this outbreak. This was the place that was impenetrable. Nothing was going to get in. They had heavy restrictions up until just a few weeks ago. Even as a few months ago, the rest of China was easing those restrictions. Beijing kept them in place. They stopped pushing some of those heavy measures only recently, and then suddenly this new cluster emerges. So it brings to mind the reality, and health officials have told us this over the past couple of months, that you can't be complacent here. You have not got this beat. It could reemerge at any moment. And proof of that was what we experienced here over the past seven days. It's interesting, isn't it? It does raise many questions. One, to your point, quite frankly, about how this happened and that you can't be complacent in any way. But there will be those that look at this and go, is this situation now under control? And can we trust what we're hearing in terms of the narrative that this wasn't homegrown effectively. It came from elsewhere. Uh, we're always skeptical about, about the origins and about the numbers, especially as they put it out here. I mean, they have tested some 350,000 individuals with regards to this most recent cluster, and they say only 183 are confirmed cases. That aside, we have tried our own ways to confirm that. So what do you do? Anecdotally, you go and you look at hospitals and you see if there's overcrowding there. That wasn't the case. It seems like for the most part, outside of the compartmentalized lockdown zones that are in place within Beijing, life is continuing as mostly normal, if you will. So it does seem like they have isolated this to a certain extent. But I think when they say under control, you have to add for now. Because what we've realized, until there is herd immunity here or there's a vaccine, it's never really under control, Julia. Yes, absolutely. And I think if I was sitting in China, I'd be going, uh, look at your own situation and the response when you get case rises versus what's going on in China, quite frankly. David Culver, yes. Thank you so much for that. All right, more countries in Asia reopening their economies. Today, Singapore has removed most of its lockdown restrictions. Chrissy Lustout has more. Julia, in a bid to boost their economies, governments across Asia are lifting pandemic restrictions. In Singapore, shops, restaurants, gyms, parks and swimming pools reopened today. Social gatherings of up to five people are now allowed, but authorities add that those able to work from home should continue to do so. Now, also today, Japan lifted all curbs on domestic travel as the government there seeks to reboot tourism. Uh, The government will also allow up to 1,000 people to gather at indoor and outdoor events. Japanese professional baseball has also restarted just without the spectators. 
And here in Hong Kong, the city has significantly eased social distancing measures by allowing public gatherings of up to 50 people, as well as wedding banquets starting today. And after a five-month closure, Hong Kong Disneyland became the world's second Disney park to reopen. It reopened yesterday with guests required to wear masks and to go through temperature screening. But no photo ops with Mickey are allowed in this time of social distancing. Julia. Chrissy Loose out there. Now, a video tweeted by President Trump has been flagged by Twitter as manipulated media. Quote, the video used a fake CNN graphic and went viral after the president's retweet. Donia O'Sullivan joins me now. Two things here, Doni. The first is that this was a manipulated video used to illustrate the point that the president believes CNN is fake news. The other thing is obviously that Twitter took action and actually pointed something out. Talk me through exactly what happened here so our viewers understand. Yeah, that's right, Julia. It's a complicated one, but a lot of us will remember this heartwarming video from last year of two toddlers excitingly running to give each other a hug. Now, CNN at the time actually covered that video, the story of the video, for what it was, a heartwarming video. The parents saying that, you know, they shared the video of the boys, one black, one white, as perhaps a good example, a lesson to us adults amid all the uh, racism in the world. So with that in mind, uh, Trump tweeted the video uh, last night, um, a, a version of the video, along with some fake uh, CNN graphics, which suggested that CNN would spin a video like this to make it look like the kids were running away from each other rather than running towards one another. Now, Twitter labeled that video as manipulated uh, media. This is a new policy that they have for uh, misleading pictures and videos and and deep fakes and so forth. Um, But I should note that this video is also on Facebook right now. Facebook hasn't taken any action on it and has gotten millions of views. Trump supporters, uh, for their part online, immediately after Twitter labeled the video, began uh, defending it, uh, saying, you know, it was a parody, satire, uh, not gaslighting, and uh, that we all uh, need to have a better sense of humor. But one person who definitely does not find um, this funny at all is one of the dads of, um, of one of the children in the video, and he posted on Facebook last night, he said, Trump cannot get away with this. He will not turn this loving, beautiful video to further his hate agenda. Julia? Yeah, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? To the president tweeting fake news to point out that he believes something is fake news. There is an irony not really buried there at all, quite frankly. Um, but to your point, this was something about two little children that clearly are very close friends and it got turned into something else. Very quickly, your point there was very important, though. Different treatment between Twitter and Facebook. And this is really important. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it is worth noting as well that this was this is a video about race. Right. And it, it was tweeted on, on the eve of Juneteenth here uh, in the United States. And, and you're right. You know, Facebook uh, is doing nothing about this video. Twitter is putting a small label on it. And we have seen that uh, Trump's uh, one of Trump's sons is now posting the video uh, on Instagram, which is a Facebook owned property. So they're really blanketing this video across uh, uh, Facebook right now. Yeah. Watch the original. It's really cute. Donio Sullivan, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some stories making headlines around the world. Australia says it's been targeted by a sophisticated state-based cyber attack. The strikes hit government, industry and essential service providers. Anna Corrin has more. 
Australia has been the target of large-scale cyber attacks from what the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison described as a malicious and sophisticated state-backed actor. All levels of government, industry, education and health services, as well as critical infrastructure, have been targeted, although there have been no large-scale breaches of personal data. The Prime Minister confirmed these attacks have been going on now for many months. So this is ongoing activity. Um, It hasn't just started. Um, This is a constant threat to Australia, as it is to many other nations, and you'd be aware um, of many other nations having highlighted similar activity in their jurisdictions. While the Prime Minister would not be drawn into which country was behind the attack, experts say they are almost certain it was China. A claim vehemently denied by China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs that said, quote, we are firmly opposed to all forms of cyber attacks. However, according to Australian security agencies, there was an uptick in attacks around the time Australia began pushing for a global inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus, which deeply angered Beijing. China retaliated by placing a ban on Australian agricultural products, as well as warning its citizens not to travel to Australia and for China's overseas students not to study in the country. The Australian Cyber Security Centre is working with the organisations that have been subject to the malicious cyber attack. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. First move, a company that says it programs DNA joins the fight against COVID-19. Sounds like science fiction, but it's science fact. We speak to the CEO and more science fiction in a video game. Why London is taking a turn for the worse in an eagerly awaited new release. All coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are heading for solid gains for the final session of the week. The Nasdaq looking to rise, in fact, for a sixth straight session, should hit the 10,000 milestone again today. Look, we've already done that if we open like this. Stocks in the headlines this morning include German fintech firm Wirecard. Shares have fallen more than 70 percent over the last two sessions amid a multi-billion dollar accounting scandal. The company's CEO resigned today, too. Shares of AMC, meanwhile, set to rise over 8%. The movie chain says it will reopen more than 600 U.S. theatres next month, but it will fill a mere 30% of its seats for each showing. AMC still down more than 20% year-to-date. How do you make enough money doing that? All right, let's move on. The biotech firm Ginkgo Bioworks engineers the DNA of microbes to grow new products. It calls this technique biology by design. The technology has been used to create everything from fragrances to food flavors to pharmaceuticals. Well, now the company has secured $70 million to develop a fast, scalable COVID-19 test. Ginkgo Bioworks was founded by five MIT PhD students, and one of them is here today. Wow, that's a lot of brain power. Joining us is Jason Kelly, co-founder and CEO of the company. Jason, great to have you with us. Um, I want to put it in English, I think, for our viewers, exactly what you do. You've described it as um, you being the largest designer of printing DNA in the world. In English, please. What do you guys do? Sure, yeah. So uh, the short form of it is we program a cell like you'd program a computer, right? And and the reason that's possible is because inside every cell is digital code in the form of DNA. So it's A, T, Cs, and Gs, not zeros and ones like in a computer, but we can read and write that code 
And when you put new code in, new DNA into the cell, it does something new, just like installing a new app on your phone. And so Ginkgo is the largest writer of DNA in the world. Uh, and then when it comes to DNA reading, that's the technology we're repurposing uh, in order to bring down the cost and do more scale in COVID-19 testing. Yeah, we've talked about this on the show before, getting the 30,000 letters that make up the genetic code or the DNA of of COVID-19 to then use that to try and test. And this was exactly what you guys yeah. saw as something you could help with. Yeah, I mean, if you you know, you might have heard of like the Human Genome Project, which is a, a big effort 20 years ago to sequence the first human genome. Well, now there's machines, these washing machine sized uh, devices, like and actually in some in the lab behind me, that uh, allow you to read a four billion letter human genome, tens of them every day uh, in that one washing machine sized device. And so if you repurpose it to instead look for the much smaller fragments of DNA in the COVID-19 genome, that single washing machine sized device could do something like 50 or 100,000 tests a day, uh, we believe. We've gone from a situation where we just needed to test to find this virus to, I think, recognizing that we need to see mass scale testing in order to just get people back into yeah. big buildings, get back to life. And this is what you're saying. It needs to be far greater, bigger and easier, quite frankly, to do weekly, daily, whatever it is, testing. Yeah, this, this is actually a key point, Julia, right? So the way I like to think about it is it's like a, it's like a nuclear bomb went off and there was a shockwave. Right. And we all ran to our bunkers. We stayed home. You had heroic efforts to scale up clinical testing, OK, which is ordered by a doctor for a patient in a hospital to say, do you or don't you have COVID-19 so I can determine your treatment. Right. And we did that. We succeeded at that. You know, in the U.S., for example, we, we do 400,000 of those clinical tests a day. And, and that's enough. That was enough to get us through the wave. And it's enough going forward. What we need now is screening. Right. And, and the and the customer of this is not a doctor. You know, the people where we, we've launched uh, Concentrix, our, our testing platform, you know, the people we're talking to are the CEOs of, of major companies. It's the uh, mayors of cities. Um, you know, it's the dean of a school all trying to bring workers or students back safely and contain outbreaks within their organization. And, and that's a screening effort. And, and if you run the numbers in the United States, for example, we, we, we had 400,000 tests for the clinical testing. I think we need closer to five or 10 million screens a day. And, and fortunately, there's, there are newer technologies that could make that much cheaper to do a screen versus a test. Uh, but that, that's what we need coming up. You mentioned the dean of a school. I'll hazard a guess that you're talking to uh, MIT about getting students back if they can in uh, the fall of this year. But I'm sure you won't. Uh, you won't tell me whether you are or you're not. <laughs> how quickly? How quickly do you think you can have these set up in universities, in colleges, in businesses? Yeah. Well, look, I think. I mean, so here's what's interesting about this. I, th I think because it's so confusing because clinical testing was needed again for that acute phase. And we succeeded there. I think people think, hey, we're done with testing or something. The reality is, if you actually were able to do screening at a huge level, again, something like five or 10 million tests a day, I think in a, in a place like the US that has an active outbreak, that's a faster route even than a vaccine to really getting rid of this thing. And, and so I, I, my hope is, you know, I think we're coming up in the US Congress on a new um, stimulus bill is my expectation. And in the last bill, you had a lot $11 billion for clinical testing. I'm hoping we see 25 more billion dollars uh, applied to to workplace opening and school opening screening. And, and I think if the U.S. makes an investment like that across the states, I think we have a, in a much, much better shape to do this. And so so 
to some degree, we have to do it by the fall. As far as I'm concerned, you've got flu season and you have schools opening. And if we don't do it, we're not in a great place. And I do believe uh, a set of new technologies, things like what we're working on with sequencing, but also you're seeing new advances in CRISPR based point of uh, care, home testing and things like that. Some of those could come online, in my opinion, in time for the fall at that five to 10 million scale if we make the investment today. Wow. So $25 billion you think would be enough to have us in a situation where you could have, and I know you're using equipment from Illumina that make these DNA, DNA sequencing machines. You think we could actually have these in places to allow some kind of normality or return to normality in, in the fall of this year? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, until widespread manufactured vaccines, screening is the only route, yeah. to, route to that. Even countries that got on top of it early, you know, look at like China with Beijing now, the, the the reality is, look, th th think of it like little fires on a bed of dry leaves, right? And, and certain countries were able to put them out quickly, but they still have a big bed of dry leaves. And we're going into the fall where this is going to spread at a higher rate. People are going to be indoors. If you have those fires pop up and you don't have the screening to go test and isolate those people and put those fires out, it's like, it's like you don't have a fire department, right? And so what I recommendation is every country right now really should be building out a fire department to get ready for the fall, even the ones that, that have done a, um, a good job putting a lid on this so far. Uh, because it's just the timing of the vaccines is is hard to predict. You know, I think you, you have great companies working on AstraZeneca, others, but but it's just they, they just aren't, you know, it's it's not a fast thing. It really is hard to do it quickly. Yeah, you raise a great point. Actually, this right now is more important than the vaccine, quite frankly, because we have to have a we have to have a working solution to get us back to life sooner than we can get a vaccine. We may never get a vaccine at all, despite the optimism about the science here. Jason, you mentioned talking to state officials. Obviously, we've talked about colleges. Um, what about the White House? What about at the congressional level? Do they understand yeah. what you're saying? I think so. Yeah, you just saw in the last couple of days the um, uh, Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. announced um, some new guidance uh, on how to get a screening-based test. Uh, um, approved uh, under approved uh, um, an EUA um, within the FDA, which is an emergency use authorization uh, for things like pooling, where you actually take, you know, maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 50 samples and mix them together at the collection site and then run them all together. And you can't say who had COVID within that group, but you could say no one did or someone did. And then mm -hmm. if someone did, you would follow up with another test. Well, if we can get things like pooling online for screening, that could bring down the cost of, of screening tests dramatically. That's something that would never work for a clinical diagnostic. If you're in, in talking to your doctor, you need a test, you need to know if you have it. That's a one-to-one -one thing. But if you're going to work with another 100 people, the, the timing and the epidemiology can work out. If, if, if it's unlikely that people have it, you all get kind of tested as a group, you get that data back, and if there's a hit, there's a follow-up. That, that sort of thing, I think that signal from the FDA is, is partially because the federal government recognizes this need for screening uh, coming up into the fall in the, in the U.S. This is such a phenomenal idea. I've not even had this discussion or read about this. Pooling, don't even need to do the individual tests, do the pool and then work out whether you have to isolate and go through individually. It's a phenomenal idea. Yeah. Jason? I mean, the reason is... Julie, we're, we're all going through this for the first time, right? You know, like that, the clinical diagnostics testing industry, that, that is something that exists because people are getting sick all the time, normal. We, we haven't had a global pandemic that shuts down the world's economies in 100 years. So none of the infrastructure exists to run an economy under that conditions, of course. And, and so we need to bring online new technologies. The FDA has never approved a pooled test. You would never need one, right? You never need to test yeah. 10 million people a day. That's insane, you know, right? Like, but under the major, in a pandemic, major it's very thinking well outside of the box. Up. 
I have to wrap you up there. Yeah. We will get you back. Awesome to chat to you. Thank you. Jason Kelly, co-founder and CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks. The market opens next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running for the final session of this week, and we're seeing strong gains across the board in early trade. As you can see, blue chips, the outperformers, the Nasdaq above 10,000 once again, closing in on record highs. We've seen a bit of a tug of war all week between hopes for economic reopening and revival on the one hand, and then on the other, the persistently high jobless claims in the United States and, of course, fresh concerns about COVID-19 case risings. We've got widely differing forecasts from U.S. financial heavyweights, too. Take a look at this. J.P. Morgan Chase says one of its models shows an almost 50 percent upside for U.S. stocks from here. Compare and contrast. Bridgewater's Ray Dalio, who is warning of a lost decade for stocks. He fears we've reached a peak of globalization and we'll see a big drop in corporate profitability. Now, if you're looking for uh, stock picks and meteoric rises, look no further than Arizona-based Nikola Motor. The company quietly listed on the Nasdaq on June the 3rd. Since then, the stock rose more than 100%, with a market cap exceeding $23 billion. That makes the company more valuable than Ford and Fiat Chrysler, at least at times. What's driving this investor optimism? Well, in part, it's pre-orders of their sleek hydrogen-powered hybrid trucks. The company says they represent more than $10 billion in potential future revenue. The company's founder and executive chairman, Trevor Milton, joins us now. Trevor, great to have you with us. All sorts of comparisons naturally made with a combination of car tech company, the likes of Tesla, of course, but actually it's very different. Explain the vision for Nikola. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really awesome. I mean, we targeted the second largest polluting industry in the world, which is transportation, heavy duty transportation. And so that's where Nikola started. We build we're the first ever um, zero emission semi truck company in the world. And what we do is we cover both hydrogen and battery electric. So we don't just build one. If you look at Tesla, they build one truck. It's it's just battery. Nikola builds both hydrogen electric semi trucks and battery electric semi trucks. And they both have their advantages and disadvantages. And so we've racked up over $10 billion worth of uh, potential uh, future revenue already in pre-orders for our truck. And that's why I think people are so excited about what, um, you know, what we do. Why hybrid? Why use a combination of both? I mean, you made the point that actually Tesla focuses on electric vehicles only. I mean, Elon Musk has called the use of fuel cells using hydrogen staggeringly dumb. He calls them fool cells, too. Why do you think there's opportunity in hydrogen where, where he doesn't? Yeah, well, I mean, he doesn't use batteries to send his rockets to space, right? <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> okay. there's no, like, there's no, one size does not fit all. And in, and when you know trucking or transportation really well, up to 300 miles, batteries work really well because they're very cheap to drive. When you get over 300 miles, the weight becomes a disadvantage. And so that's where hydrogen comes in. And the unique thing about Nikola is we're the only company that I know of in the world that is fully vertically integrated. That means we we don't just provide the truck. We provide all the all the hydrogen for it, too. We produce our own hydrogen through through uh, zero emission methods. So our supply chain is zero emission from production to consumption, unlike anyone else in the world. And that's why there's really been so much excitement. One size just does not fit all in transportation, unfortunately. 
And this is one of the challenges as well with the electric is the charging stations. I know you've also got interest in the hydrogen fueling stations as well, which I think is your point about actually providing the power here too. Yeah, so I mean, there's as I said, there's advantages and disadvantages to battery and hydrogen. The disadvantage to to batteries are is it takes you know two to three hours to charge those massive battery banks on semi trucks without damaging the batteries, and sometimes that can um, you know that turnaround time would 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 kill you and it takes a ton of energy out of the grid. The advantage to hydrogen is you can turn that truck, you can fill it up in 15 minutes, and then go on the go on the road again, and you can do that 24 hours a day without ever stopping. And hydrogen is produced over 24 hours of the day using all the peak load from solar. So right now throughout the world, like solar and wind energy, a lot of it is just given away or they pay people to take it, um, other power companies, because they have too much of it on the grid. Hydrogen solves that problem by taking all that excess energy, producing hydrogen over 24 hours a day, and then it just dispenses it in zero emission hydrogen gas into the vehicle. Um, and that's why there's some real good advantages to what hydrogen does. So now we've explained the excitement, and it is excitement about what might be ultimately, because you haven't delivered a truck yet. You have lots of pre-orders, as I mentioned. Um, I want to tackle something that came up very recently, and that was sort of an accusation dating back to 2016 from Bloomberg that you misled people about the capabilities of the truck at that point. I, I know you've denied them. Can you just explain where you stand at this point and just refute some of the allegations? Yeah, it was just really sad. I mean, Bluebird, the, this guy, Ludlow, he did a hit job on Nikola, and he knew it was a lie because we actually recorded the whole interview, and we're going to post it out there for everyone to actually listen to it. He knew it was a lie. There's videos that show that we told people, hey, his, I mean, his main claim was is the truck wasn't wasn't moving at Nikola World, and in 2016 is what, four or five years ago, uh, our first prototype we ever built. And we told everyone at the audience it was capable of moving, but we didn't want to because of the, the danger of it. So all the parts functioned. You had batteries, you had motors, you had e-axles, you had inverters, you had everything there. It was all there. And instead of you know taking a risk and possibly hurting or killing someone, we decided to um, make the truck inoperable on the stage. And you know we never we never took it out on the road because it just wasn't safe. So we rebuilt a whole brand new one, and that's what we unveiled. You know that's what we showed off, and that's what you see video of our trucks driving all over. We've done. Deliveries with Anheuser Busch on the road, on the on the highways, on the main roads of uh, of or downtown St. Louis. So it's it's really sad because like it was there's clear evidence that what he was saying was a lie. It was just a hit job. He's a he's a very big Tesla fanatic. He's in Tesla's back pocket, oh, and I so see. his entire job was to hit Nikola and try to stop our stop our growth. And I just you know look, it's bad for all journalists when one journalist begins to become. Um, advocating for one company or, or, or deceiving people. I'm going to call them out. I'm not afraid, but I also love journalism. So I just don't want people to act like that. It, you know, hit me for what you, there's lots well, of things to hit me on. I mean, for heaven's sake. He's made his accusations. You're responding and I know you're suing them. So you'll battle it out. I do want to ask you though, when are you going to deliver some of these trucks and when are you going to see yeah. revenues coming in? Yeah, that's the number one question. And, and I think that's investors have been really when we went into this IPO, we told everyone, look, we're, we're more than a year out on, 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 on revenue. Everyone knows that. It was in all of our disclosures. And investors are okay with that because we're changing the entire world. Like we're literally – they're saying, you know, if you are willing to go in and disrupt oil altogether, we will, we'll give you one or two years. I mean it took Tesla, what, 10 years to ever become – even hit a profitable quarter almost. So they're like, you know what, one or two years, a couple years, Trevor, we're totally there for you. 
And, you know, when does our revenue begin? Well, we're, our original filings were around the uh, middle to end of 2021. With COVID, we don't know. There's a couple-month delay. We don't know how far, you know, when markets will open back up. We still can't get into Germany. That's where our factory is. So once, um, you know, once all the borders open up and our employees can start going back and forth, We'll know that, but we're, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a little bit of a delay, but it's not too bad. Yeah, it's, you know, in, you know, sometime in the end of 2021, uh, beginning sometime in 2022, depends on COVID, uh, COVID restrictions. Wow. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Trevor, great to have you on. Stay in touch and to keep us updated on progress. Trevor Milton, founder and executive chairman Thanks. of Appreciate Nicola Rota. Thank you. All right. Still to come on First Move, helping other black entrepreneurs succeed. We speak to one of the co-founders of a fund run by and aimed at black business people. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Empowerment through business investment. That's the credo of three successful black entrepreneurs who together founded Colab Capital, a new Atlanta-based fund with a target of $50 million to help black entrepreneurs launch successful tech businesses. The aim to expand the pool of investors from the traditional one, predominantly white and male. Colab Capital also differs from traditional venture funds in that it favors profit sharing over giving capital in exchange for equity or a piece of the business. Justin Dawkins is one of the managing partners at Colab Capital and he joins us now from Atlanta. Justin, great to have you on the show. Talk me through why you and two other entrepreneurs decided that this was the right thing to be doing. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure uh, on this beautiful Juneteenth. Um, the, the the quick backstory is uh, we, we started our companies around the same time in 2012, and we went on our own entrepreneurial journeys, but we did it kind of side by side. And so we built a really great friendship and rapport over the years. And one of the things that we committed to after exiting our businesses, whether good or bad, uh, we decided that uh, the next crop of founders that came behind us, uh, particularly black founders that came behind us to do their to pursue their endeavors, shouldn't start where we started. They should start where we left off. And so part of that was ensuring that there was a uh, access to capital um, was one of the things we wanted to make sure that they had as they grew their businesses. It's astonishingly bad when you look at the statistics for venture capital. Just in the United States alone, it's less than 1% for black owners of businesses. That's huge opportunity that investors are missing out on, but also for the entrepreneurs involved. Justin, why aren't they getting access to this money to help them grow their businesses? Great question. And the primary the primary reason is um, access. Uh, this it's a, it's a network game. It's all about who you know um, with capital. Uh, the second thing is... Um, diversification of ideas, right? So people build products uh, out of the experiences they have, whether in their workplace or in their lives. And if you aren't connected to individuals that have a similar um, lifestyle or similar upbringing or similar career path, you're not proximate to the problems and therefore you're not proximate to those that are uh, solving those problems through their entrepreneurial endeavors. So access is the, the, the number one reason. We see that often in Silicon Valley, everyone invests in everyone else. So it's, a, as you say, it's a network game. And if you're not accessing the, the pool, you, you can't achieve it. Tell me what you guys do specifically and, and how you're doing in raising money. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Well, we, we started out um, with very similar to what founders would do uh, with a friends and family round. So we started out with Atlanta and those that were proximate to us. And we really wanted to focus on uh, high net worth individuals um, who are accredited, accredited investors 
Uh, so you're talking about athletes, entertainers, uh, corporate executives that have, have uh, built great organizations or um, they make their money in, in those ways. And so we, we, we focused that uh, we focused there uh, to get them involved in the fund. Uh, and, and now uh, we're expanding beyond that. So we're looking at family offices. We're looking at some foundations. Uh, so we're raising capital from everything from pension funds to uh, high net worth individuals and everybody in between. So uh, we've been really, really um, persistent in telling the stories of black founders and some of the amazing um, products that they're building and businesses they're building. And that's really carried us quite a ways um, when people start to learn about some of the ideas that uh, these resilient black founders have. We're seeing huge social change in the United States, I think, at this moment. You mentioned Juneteenth, the the day we celebrate the effective end of slavery in the United States. It's such an important day. Do you think this helps you raise more money? Do you think what we're seeing now will help? I think it's a combination of things. I think it's, it's one part COVID. I think COVID slowed the world down just enough um, to pay attention to some glaring, glaring, huge problems, and one of them being uh, systemic racism in, in the United States. And uh, yes, and then with with the unfortunate um, killings of unarmed black people um, and other things that the visibility was there. We were able to watch it all live. We're all Most people were at home watching it on um, you know, whatever their connect device might device. It's kind of hard not to pay attention ultimately. And so uh, it, it's been uh, very interesting. We've you know, been able to share a lot of our story. Uh, we've, we've been working on this business for over two years. And so uh, the timing is very interesting in that way. We're, we're um, very mindful of the sensitivities, uh, but we also realize that a solution is needed. And so we're happy to lead in that and excited to talk to people about what, we're, what, what we've been working on and um, charting a path forward. So really excited about it. I love what you're doing. Investment, education, this is the key to unlocking and reducing some of these inequalities, among other things. Justin, stay in touch. We'll keep up to date on uh, on how you're doing with the fundraising and who you're helping. Great to chat to you. Justin Absolutely. Dawkins Thank there. Thank you so much. Colag Capital. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, what's going on in London? Do not worry, this is not real, even if it looks like it is. Excitement mounts at a couple of new video games that take a tough look at what might be the future. Stay with us. A case of art imitating life. Well, maybe in the video gaming world, at least. Two of the most anticipated releases this year are topical, to say the least. The Last of Us Part 2 is out today. It's set in a world struck by a global pandemic. There are zombies involved, however, and so that's where the comparison fails. It's one of the last big releases on the Sony PS4 before its replacement comes along later this year. And take a look at this, too. It's London, but not quite as we know it. You could say it's gone to the dogs. The game is called Watch Dogs Legion, and it's set in a grim post-Brexit Britain. I'd argue both of these releases take gameplay to a whole new level. Claire Sebastian joins me now. The Brexiteers are going to be angry with that, Claire, but that's the least of our worries. The graphics on these games are astonishing. I felt like it was a video and I was looking. Talk us through uh, what we're going to see. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of this, uh, Julia, is how the, the video game world is really starting to emulate Hollywood, not only uh, in the quality of the games, but, but the storylines you see. And now The Last of Us Part Two is actually out today. That is the second in a series very long awaited. The first part, The Last of Us 
Part one was out in 2013. It, it tracks the story of, of a parasitic fungus disease that, that really wipes out 60% uh, of humanity. Now, the second part uh, picks up that there's been a lot of embargoes, but it's basically a, a revenge story. And, and you see the sort of violence that emerges in the wake of it. I think to call it violent would actually be an understatement. People have said they cried for an hour after playing uh, the, the entirety of this game. Uh, but but it, it's, it's extremely violent. It's extremely traumatic for people to play. And I think the question is, given how topical this is at the moment, is this the kind of escapism that, that people are looking for? Or, or is it sort of asking game players to purge their worst fears uh, about what's currently going on in the world? I think probably the former game players are really used to sort of apocalyptic visions of the future. So, so And the, the first part was extremely popular, one of the best-selling games originally on the PS3 and now the PS4. Uh, but as for Watchdog Legions, this you know could be described as political. It does have Brexit as part of its, its backdrop. It sort of shows the worst-case scenario of what could happen. London is transformed into this incredibly violent surveillance state where zombies, sort of killer zombies rule and there are riots. And it's really sort of a re how to form a resistance to take that back. So uh, again, a, a lot to deal with for, for people who are going to play these games. Watchdog Legion, though, not out yet. We don't have a release for that. No, I can appreciate the graphics, but I think I'd rather watch uh, The Little Mermaid, quite frankly, or Frozen. <laughs> Uh, Claire, talk to me about PlayStation 5 <laughs> versus 4. Talk about the step up. Yeah, it's a really big deal for for Sony. PS5 is going to be out this holiday season. Uh, we just got a, a bit of a reveal just over a week ago. We saw some of the games uh, that, that they're going to be releasing with the PS5. Interestingly, The Last of Us Part 2 will also be available on the PlayStation 5. It is sort of the swan song for the, the PS4, but they are going to make it available on the PS5 as well. So that, that should be another lure. PlayStation 4 has really ruled over the video games world uh, for the last seven years of this cycle. And they're going to be going up against uh, the Xbox new console, the Xbox X series this holiday season. So we wait for a release date on that still, Julia. We still don't know the price. So there's a lot at stake over the next few months for the video game world. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Back. To the Little Mermaid. Claire Sebastian, <laughs> thank you so much for that. And that's it for First Move. Stay safe, everybody. Have a good weekend, and we'll see you back here on Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.